Thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this all week. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm super excited. And we have Dr. Scott Eilers on today. He is a clinical psychologist who uses functional practices to support his patients. And I'm just so excited for you to talk about everything with health and nutrition and how this works with your patients. So how did you get started in all of this? Well, I would say the big turning point for me probably was, well, there's a couple. And there's a couple kind of crazy stories in here. I'll try to keep it reasonable. Um, in undergraduate, as I was getting my bachelor's in psychology, I started to kind of have a fitness routine. And that was probably the single biggest game changer for me personally in my own mental health journey. So that's something right away I became really interested in taking more kind of holistic, whole person, mind body approaches, like really from day one. And that kind of naturally branched into, you know, also being interested in food and mental health. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's just always been a big part of my framework and my practice. But there was, there was a really big turning point for me in 2010. Um, I had gotten an internship at a holistic private practice. It was primarily an eating disorder clinic. Um, which I had no experience in whatsoever, but they hired me because they were trying to create a depression and anxiety program. Oh, wow. And I remember in that interview, the owner, it's a relatively small clinic, so the owner was actually a practitioner, interviewed everybody personally, and she said, you know, would you ever have any interest in working in our eating disorder program with your interest in, you know, food and holistics? And given that it was a job interview, I said yes. Although in my head, I was thinking, absolutely not. I'm terrified of that. But, you know, you do what you got to do to get the job right. right. And, I, and I figured, what are the odds that this ever actually comes up? They have all these eating disorder specialists. What are they ever going to want me in those programs for? Um, so first nine months of that job kind of went according to my plan. And then one of the um, clinicians in the eating disorder program went on maternity leave and decided not to come back. So the owner calls me in her office and says, hey, remember your interview? When you said you wanted to work with people with eating disorders, oh no! <laughs> here's your big chance. And, and I, I remember saying something along the lines of like, just give me 24 hours to think about it. And what I meant was, give me 24 hours to think about how to get out of this. <laughs> because, because I just, it, it was something I had no experience in. And it just, I was just nervous about it. So that evening... I was out walking my dog and my mom called me and it was just kind of a, an unusual time of day for her to call me. So right away I felt like, I think something is up. And she told me that my aunt had passed away. Oh. And my aunt was like 55. I mean, she was not in age where that would be expected. Oh my goodness. So I said, what happened? And it, I wasn't super close with her. I didn't see her that often. Um, I didn't really have a great sense of like how she was doing and my mom said well I don't know if you knew this or not but she has been struggling with an eating disorder oh my gosh and she she passed out and hit her head and it was fatal oh no so obviously everything kind of came into focus for you at that so, point <laughs> yeah so I go into work the next morning and I said all right let's do this yeah and what does that look like for you now I use what I've learned in the eating disorder world with basically everybody I work with because I, I know you're familiar with this terminology because I've seen you use it, but 
in mental health, we talk about, you know, there's eating disorders and then there's disordered eating. Mm -hmm. Most people who have at least one mental health condition, maybe even most people in general, I don't know, have some level of disordered eating. Not that many of us really do what we're supposed to do. And so the practices that I learned from working with people with, say, anorexia or bulimia and and working with dietitians and psychiatrists and primary care providers to help them figure out how they should be eating, I've been applying that knowledge to basically everyone I work with because most people with depression struggle to nourish themselves or people with anxiety. Those things can really affect your appetite, your physical functioning. Um, And so it's something I do with almost every single person I work with to some extent. And can you, I do want to get into the depression and anxiety and the relationship with food, but first, will you talk about the difference between disordered eating and eating disorders? Because I don't think people understand that being on an extreme diet could be disordered eating because they're not really sure what that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you'd probably ask 10 different people and get 10 different answers. I would say disordered eating is anything that is significantly outside of the realm of what your body and mind need for optimal health. And it can be outside that realm in either direction. Um, Really restrictive diets can be disordered eating if your brain's not getting the resources it needs. Um, Eating way too much can also be disordered eating because that actually doesn't help your brain either. Um, I mean, I would say I'm probably pretty rigid on how I define it. I would say anyone who regularly skips a meal or restricts to some degree is engaging in a disordered eating practice. Um, mm-hmm. your, your brain, a lot of, there's a common misconception about the brain that it can kind of store resources somehow. That is just neurologically speaking, it's not true. Your brain has no storage capacity for food. It doesn't have a gas tank like people talk about. Your brain needs food to do its job. And it is completely at the mercy of whatever nutrients are in your bloodstream. And so if you go too long without eating, your brain suffers as a result, and that affects your mental health. Even if you don't have a mental health condition, that affects your mental health. Um, and most, I don't know about most, I haven't like looked in depth at all of them, but many, many diets that are relatively common or accepted are somewhat disordered if you really follow them. Mm-hmm. There's, so I've seen, as you were saying, it kind of goes both ways, right? Restriction or even to the point of binging. I've seen clients who are terrified to have more than a thousand calories a day. And I just think, mm-hmm. I don't know how your neurosystem is even functioning. And then, <sighs> I, have well. cli- yeah, and then I have clients who come <laughs> in and they're like, well, hummus is healthy. So I just binge on hummus in the evening. And I'm like, oh my goodness, <laughs> right. like to a point. Um, yeah. So I think it's fascinating, though, that you're talking about, you know, when you starve your brain of nutrients, how that actually does develop and what happens to you when you do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your brain. Um, OK, this is disclaimer. This is a little scary, but it's true. So people need to know it. If you are not eating enough and that doesn't that's not exclusive to people who meet full diagnostic criteria for anorexia. Uh, like a thousand calories, that's restrictive, mm-hmm. at least in my opinion. I'm not a dietitian, but I would, from a brain health perspective, I would consider that pretty restrictive. If you are engaging in restrictive eating practices, your brain actually shrinks. Oh my goodness. Not, not permanently. If you start eating, if you start nourishing it properly, it can restore. 
but your brain can shrink by up to, I think it's like 40 or 50 millimeters. And the average adult brain is about 680 millimeters. So that's wow. not insignificant. I mean, it's kind of freaky, isn't it? But Emotionally, what happens to you if your brain shrinks? Most of the shrinkage occurs in the frontal lobes, the front third of your brain, which is the part of our brain that's most different or distinct from other mammals. So all the really important, super cool human stuff that we can do lives there. So things like long-term planning, complex social engagement, emotion regulation, behavioral inhibition, orientation to present space and time, those are all functions that become diminished when we're restricting. That is incredible. So those are all I did not know that. Well. Uh, to to I'm totally stealing this from Dr. Daniel Amen, but um, he had a quote that I heard him say recently that, you know, if you, if you were having heart problems and you saw a cardiologist and they said, you're physically damaging your heart by doing these certain things, most people would be like, oh my gosh, I need to stop doing those things. I need to follow this person's advice because I want my heart to be healthy. But we have this weird thing where for whatever reason, we act like our brains are somehow less important than our hearts. It's definitely not the case. I don't think people really associate nutrition in their brain. I think people, maybe because heart disease is just so ever present in our society and cancer is ever present and then diabetes and obesity. I think we think of our major internal organs and we oftentimes mm. forget about our brain. Right. Which is a major internal organ. That's exactly what it is. And so that kind of leads me to, I've, I've always told people, your stomach is your second brain. They connect to each other. Mm -hmm. They talk to each other. So you can't ignore your stomach because you are ignoring your brain. Can you talk about, Absolutely. again, that depression and anxiety and how eating actually can improve that or make you feel a different way and how those two talk to each other? Mm-hmm. There's a couple main, main things I'd want people to know there. So one relates to what we were talking about just a minute ago with the frontal lobes and emotion regulation. So the part of your brain that creates feelings and the part of your brain that deals with feelings, they are two different parts of the brain. Your emotions, all your emotions, the pleasant and the unpleasant ones, anger, sadness, excitement, joy, fear, they all come from the same place in your brain. They come from your limbic system and that's in the midbrain. Your ability to deal with your emotions, to, to have them, but still hopefully make you know, healthy, adaptive choices with those emotions, again, that's in your frontal lobes. That's, that's emotional regulation. When we are, to any degree, malnourished, even like skipping a meal, like not eating breakfast, for example, your frontal lobe activation will decrease because it is, technically speaking, the least essential part of your brain. If your limbic system stops working, you have no sense of danger and you, you won't avoid dangerous situations. If your brainstem stops working, you stop breathing and you die. So your brain's not going to shut those off. It's going to shut off the complicated social stuff. Um, and so if you already struggle with emotion regulation in the first place, maybe you have depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder or you have panic attacks, if your frontal lobes are in any way diminished or decreased, that stuff's all going to get worse. The other big link is blood sugar. This one relates more specifically to anxiety, but blood sugar, if you look up the symptoms of a low blood sugar episode, which is not, of course, unique to people with diabetes, every human being, if they eat, you know, say you have a meal with a bunch of carbs and sugar, and then you skip a meal or have a light meal after, you'll have a blood sugar plummet. 
if you look up the symptoms, it looks like an anxiety attack. Oh, wow. It increased heart rate, sweating, nervousness, confusion, irritability. Those are all symptoms of a low blood sugar episode. Those are also symptoms of an anxiety attack. So if you already have anxiety attacks anyway, the last thing on earth you want is to have more of them because of the way you're eating, right? That's incredible. I don't think, again, I don't think people put two and two together. I definitely didn't. Yeah, no, it's it's not common sense. Like we're not we're not born knowing this stuff and this I won't get too much on my pedestal about this, but we're not taught this stuff. Like health class, at least when I was in high school, which admittedly was a little bit ago, like we played volleyball. I mean, if, you oh, know, like it was fun, uh, but okay. I, <laughs> I I would have much rather have learned this stuff than done that. And it's kind of silly like what we do and don't prioritize teaching people. That's a whole other, I could talk for like five hours about that. We just, we could be doing so much more to prepare people for adulthood. And I get really frustrated about that. So when you, okay, let's pretend I was coming to you as a patient and I have anxiety and I've talked about anxiety before on my podcast and let's pretend I had a horrific diet. What's, what Mm -hmm. is something you would talk to me about? The first thing that I would emphasize, well, first I'd tell you I'm not a dietitian and all my advice is specifically related only to mental health. And if you have a health condition, you know, your medical providers overrule me, all that, right? But that being said, if you eat three meals a day, reasonably spaced out, you know, five-ish hours apart, and maybe one or two snacks here and there, you're probably in the top 20th percentile for eating healthy. Because most people, at least in terms of people that I talk to, which admittedly is maybe not a 100% representative sample, most people don't do that. And if you do that, regardless of what those foods are, as long as they're just, you know, appropriate quantities, you're going to be doing pretty well on the nutrition side of things. Nutrition's tricky because, at least for people who are already struggling to manage their daily life, you got to be careful about not overcomplicating it because so many, you know, it's really easy to get too into, you know, every macronutrient and vitamin levels and stuff. And then people just say, you know what, that's too complicated. Right, it's too much. Yeah, you got to take it one step at a time. But just eating three meals a day will do so much for your brain. And so that's really where I encourage people to start. And until you're there, don't worry about anything else nutritionally. Do you see most of your patients aren't eating a substantial amount of food a day? Yes. The most com- well, it's, it's kind of both. Here's the most common pattern I see. This is probably 80 to 90% of people regardless of diagnosis and age and gender. Like this is, this just kind of seems to be the way people are living. Either you don't eat breakfast or breakfast is more of like a snack. It's like a handful of something on the way out the door, right? Mm -hmm. Probably don't have a mid-morning snack. Eat something around noon, which is either whatever's in the break room at work or like a lean cuisine type frozen meal you brought from home or something that's maybe not quite ideal. Or maybe you go out and get some fast food. And then probably nothing between lunch and dinner. And so at this point in the day, you're really, your first half of the day, you've generally under-eaten. You know, if that's if that's your pattern, that's really inadequate for what your brain needs. Mm-hmm. And your brain knows that and it panics and tries to overcompensate a little bit. So then on the way home, maybe you grab some fast food, you get home, make a frozen meal, and you probably are going to overeat on that because your brain is recognizing that, you know, it's 
our day is three quarters over now and you've eaten like 600 calories and that's just not going to cut it. So now let's eat two thirds worth of the day's worth of food in one sitting. Right. So they're simultaneously under eating and overeating at the same time. That is by far the most common pattern I see. Well, you know, what's funny about that is, so I learned this in school and I teach this to my clients is that your circadian rhythm, it actually speeds up your metabolism very yes. early in the morning. So mm -hmm. I tell my clients, eat like a king at breakfast, eat like a prince yes. at lunch, and eat like a pauper for dinner because you're slowing down in the evening and you're so right. Our society is starve, 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 eat as much as I possibly can, go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very, like, in terms of you linking it to sleep, it's dead on because I, I honestly think a lot of people's nutritional problems start with sleep because their sleep schedules are inadequate. People mm -hmm. tend to go to bed too late and not get enough sleep, which means in the morning you're rushed and you feel like crap. And the last thing on earth you want to do is like go into the kitchen and make food when you wake up 30 minutes before you have to leave for work and you have no energy and you're not in a good mood. And, and I think for a lot of people, the eating problems start with sleeping problems. That's interesting. So, okay. So you're seeing people who aren't eating enough food. And then what about people who are just yo-yo dieting? Because of course we live in a society where we have an unattainable idea of what the female body should be and the male body should be. And people don't just accept that I'm going to be a size six or I'm going to be a size eight or I'm a 12 or a two. They have a very hard time accepting who they are. Mm -hmm. So what do you talk to patients about who are on diets or again, maybe disordered eating again with that, but what do you talk to them about? Yeah, there's a few points I like to emphasize there. One is there is no universal body type. If we lived in some kind of dystopian future where like all our food was in pill form and we all had exactly the same intake, we wouldn't all look the same. We'd still have tremendous diversity in how we look from one person to the next. And, and everybody kind of has a range, right, of what you kind of could feasibly look like without doing something a little crazy, like an extreme diet, for example. And, and so that's one thing I like to emphasize right away is if you, if you eat the way you're supposed to, if you eat in a way that's going to be optimal for your physical and mental health, your body is just going to look some certain way. And I can't tell you exactly what that is, but saying that that way is right or wrong doesn't really make sense. Like it's going to be an outcome of you taking proper care of yourself mm -hmm. and approaching your relationship with food from the perspective of, I want to look like this or be this size or be this weight is kind of like shopping for a house or a car without having a budget and just saying, I want that. Mm -hmm. And whatever that is, it's probably really expensive. It's probably something <laughs> really nice and really fancy. And, and you're saying no matter what it takes, you know, I want that Ferrari. I want that car. And it's going to go one of two ways. Either you just can't make it work and you're going to be miserable. Or maybe you can do it, right? Maybe you can say, okay, if I live in an apartment and take no vacations and live on a, you know, $40 a month food budget, then I can afford this car. Okay, cool. So you got what you wanted, but what was the cost? Mm -hmm. Because the things you have to do to get that probably detract from your quality of life more than having that thing does. And I see people fall into that with their bodies a lot, where what it might 
take away from you in terms of time or joy or your social life or your family life or your money to achieve that body, those things you have to give up are probably more important to your happiness than looking that way. So that's one thing. Um, you talked about yo-yo dieting. With any lifestyle change, whether that's diet, diet or not, one of the biggest mistakes that people make is they're too dramatic with their lifestyle changes. They, they think they're going to be able to like kind of turn on a dime and live in a way that's totally different from how they've been living. In other words, you try to make a change through willpower. Mm-hmm. And what I think people often don't understand is willpower is finite. You can't make a change through willpower and make it stick forever. Your willpower will eventually run out. For some people, that's two weeks. For some people, it's two months. But if the only thing that's keeping a change going is willpower, as soon as that willpower runs out, the change will undo itself. So if you really want to do something like change your relationship with food, you have to do it in a sustainable way, a way that you're going to be able to keep doing even on days when your motivation's lower or your willpower's lower, because those days will happen. Um, and usually the key to that is gradual change, not, not just turning your life upside down overnight. It's just very rare that that's going to stick and work long term. And food is tricky because you, you can't really get away from it. Um, you know, if you, have, if you have certain foods that you know, like if I'm around that food, I'm going to tend to overeat on it. Well, you can not buy it, but what happens when it's in the break room at work or what happens when you go to a birthday party and it's there? Um, this is, this is a, little bit, a little bit different, but in terms of people who, who meet criteria for binge eating disorder, for example, a lot of times they try to cope with that by removing their trigger foods, the foods they try to binge on. But abstinence-based diets for binge eating don't work because... Right. Like, you're going to go to the grocery store, right? I mean, you're going you're gonna to see those foods. Um, and just saying, I'm never going to eat that again for the rest of my life, A, doesn't usually work. B, might make you miserable anyway. So it's all about sustainable, gradual change. Well, and something I like, you're kind of wrapping it all together, and I love this. So you're talking about, you know, willpower, which I've heard so many clients tell me, like, I can get down to 1200 calories a day. It's no problem. And I'm like, oh no, no, we're increasing your calories. Like you need to eat. But they always tell me I'm mentally tough. I can do this. And thinking to what you, what you started this whole podcast saying was, yeah, you're mentally tough now because you're eating. But when you stop that mental toughness is going away. So you're not going to have that willpower anyway, because you're shrinking your brain to even have that capability. Exactly. Because if you think about like what willpower is, well, that's in your frontal lobes. Remember what the frontal lobes do. Behavioral inhibition. I want to do this thing, but I'm not going to do it. Long-term planning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something that doesn't make me feel great today because I want some outcome tomorrow. That's willpower. And those are in the part of your brain that shrinks when you undereat. But, but, but even if you're not undereating, it's still true. If you look at anybody who has had long-term success at anything, food-related or otherwise, that's been doing it for years, it's not willpower. They're not waking up every day not wanting to do that thing and then willing themselves to do it. No one can do that forever. They have found ways to make those things, whatever they are, a sustainable part of their life. Willpower does not last forever. At some point, you'll say, you know what? Forget this. I'm sick of it. I'm going back to the way things were. If that's the only thing keeping you going, it will not last. 
And I love that you're saying this because I literally preach at my clients that we're creating a lifestyle and we're going to find foods that you like because otherwise this is never going to work. So I love that you're saying this and I'm going to point them to this and say, look, I'm not lying to you. (laughs) Yeah. If eating is a chore, if eating is unpleasant, that's not sustainable. No one's going to live like that for 20, 30, 40 years. No. And if you think you're just going to eat rabbit food all day, of course you're going to go find the Reese's peanut butter cup and your kid's Halloween candy. Exactly. So I kind of want to pivot to COVID-19 and mental health and what you have seen going on. Yeah, that's an interesting topic as it relates to mental health, because a lot of people in my personal life, you know, like everybody, almost everybody to some degree is struggling right now. Right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people ask me, like, man, I can only imagine, you know, with how I feel, I being some pretty mentally healthy person I know. If I feel like this, I can only imagine what someone with chronic depression or chronic anxiety feels like right now. But the funny thing about that is the way that we are, most of us are kind of forced to live right now and the way we feel as a result of living that way is actually not that different than how people who have more chronic mental health struggles feel and live on a more normal year. And at least for the people that I work with, I think as a whole, they're actually maybe less affected by at least like the social changes of COVID-19 than people who weren't already struggling because they were kind of already living like this. Um, Things like not leaving the house as often as you'd like to or having minimal social interactions, feeling lonely or disconnected from others, not having a lot of physical touch. Those are normal struggles for a lot of people prior to 2019. Um, For a lot of people I work with, 2020 is not going to be remembered as an unusually bad year. I mean, they'll obviously remember like COVID, but unless they had some kind of major personal impact from it, like a job loss or a loved one getting sick, This year isn't a lot different for them. Some people kind of live like this all the time. I think that's kind of devastating to hear because so many people are struggling and maybe they're actually able to empathize now just because, I mean, this has been extremely difficult. I know for me, for sure, it's been very difficult. So I imagine having to live with this and not be in a pandemic where you feel like I'm alone and I feel mm-hmm. like this, like at least in a pandemic, you don't feel alone. Yeah, you're not alone in your aloneness. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, everyone's suffering. Everyone feels right. bad. I can't even imagine thinking I'm the only one who feels like this right now and it hurts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. But that is, this is normal for millions of people, at least to some extent. So when they come and they speak to you about what they're feeling during COVID versus not COVID. Is there anything that kind of sticks out to you with just what their experience is? Well, you know, for people who have like health, it depends on, it depends on your type of anxiety because people get anxious about different things. Mm -hmm. I will say for people whose anxiety centers more around health and things like that, this has been an abnormally difficult year for them. Um, And it's definitely been disruptive to some of my treatment plans with people. Like people with social anxiety, for example, I had a lot of people doing exposure therapy where, okay, every day you go out somewhere, 
you know, your, your greatest fear is being out and around people. So obviously that's exactly what I'm going to make you do because that's the only way you really get past it. And suddenly, well, now you can't. Like literally you can't go there today. So Do it, they kind of love that? Actually, no. Okay. I mean, people who are... I'm <laughs> Okay, this might be a little funny, but I, I kind of have a little bit of a reputation where I work for like kind of being a... I don't know exactly what the right word would be. You don't pick me as your therapist if you want an easy therapist. Oh, so if you want to be coddled, we're not going to Dr. Scott Eilers. That's that's not, no, you will be disappointed if that's what you're looking for from me. (laughs) Um, I'm definitely known as somebody who pushes people and challenges people. And that kind of relates back to, to, you know, functional principles that, um, one of the core one of the core concepts of of functional medicine or functional behavioral health is as an alternative to the medical model the healing or the treatment doesn't really happen with the provider so the the one hour a week you talk to me that hour isn't going to be what solves your problems that hour is going to be making a plan things you can do to solve your own problems I am not the solution I am the idea Hmm. and it's it's a it's a it's a collaborative approach so it's very individualized functional care is very individualized and very collaborative and the the general concept is I am an expert on the norms I know behavioral health in general I know the research I know the statistics and I also know that there are outliers to every research. There are always people who in some way, shape, or form don't fit the mold, don't fit the norm. You, meaning you, my client, you are the expert on you. You know more about yourself than I ever will. You know all the ways that you don't fit the mold. You know all your little idiosyncrasies, all the things that are different about you. And if we really want to succeed, we have to combine my expertise and your expertise to make an individualized plan for you. Um, so that's kind of a roundabout way of saying, no, actually people were really disappointed <laughs> that they couldn't. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of getting a little bit better now, but um, no, people, people who work with me kind of know what they're in for and, and generally want that approach. Did you see an increase in people trying to come and speak with you who all of a sudden had depression or anxiety that they've never had before? I did not personally see that because I already have such a ridiculous wait list that I don't think I would notice, sadly. But in general, that is 100% true. Um, I might get these reversed, but 2020 compared to 2019 rates of depression and rates of anxiety. I believe depression has tripled and anxiety has quadrupled. Wow. It may be the other way around. One tripled and one quadrupled. I don't recall which is which, but in general, yes, so many more people are struggling. Like those are now normal. Depression and anxiety right now are normal feelings to have because of world events. That's terrible. I know it really is. So when I experience anxiety, it feels like there's pressure in my chest. And then I Mm -hmm. go, 
I cycle through things in my head, like conversations I'm having with someone or which these conversations will never come to fruition, but I can't stop them. And so Mm -hmm. I've started meditating on that. And I think about that either it's something I'm angry about or it's something I'm disappointed about. And I think about it as a rock and I think about Mm -hmm. throwing it away into a river and watching it just float away and saying, I can't control that. What do you recommend for people who, one, just say, stop thinking about it? Because a lot of people who have anxiety, we can't stop, but people just say, just don't think about it. And what do you say to someone who says that first? First of all, I tell them that they are now my enemy. (laughs) I hate it when people see. (laughs) No, I don't. I only think that silently to myself. What I say is, we all have a finite capacity for attention at any given moment. So whatever you're thinking about, whatever's on your mind, if you could like pause time and map it out, you could put it on a pie chart, right? You're almost never thinking about just one thing. Mm-hmm. It's almost always at least two or three things in there. Um, having anxiety is kind of like having a piece of that pie chart permanently reserved for worrying about stuff. And that's why you can have anxiety even when nothing's wrong, because your brain will find something. Your life is never perfect. Your brain can always find something to be anxious about. A person's general level of cognitive activity or mental activity is pretty stable throughout the entire day as long as they're not exhausted. You're always thinking about the same amount of stuff. The content changes, but the amount does not change. And so the idea of thinking less about something or not thinking about something is a neurological fallacy. It's impossible. Our brains do not work that way. It's completely inaccurate to suggest that we can do that. You can't just remove something from your brain. In fact, when you try to do that, it usually has the opposite effect. Because in order to try not to think about something, you have to think about the thing that you're trying not to think about to then try to suppress that thought. I like, like, literally <laughs> just thought about Ghostbusters and like, don't think about anything. And then like the marshmallow man, like I had to yeah. think about something. <laughs> so it, if people doubt me on this, I have a super quick exercise that I, that I use to prove it. So whatever you do, we can try it right now. Under okay. no circumstances right now, I want you to try your absolute hardest to not think about black cats. What just happened? I literally went dog, 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 and all I saw was a cat in my head. <laughs> yeah. So you actually tried the proper strategy, which is to think about something else. That's exactly what you should do. But in order to think, don't think about a black cat, you have to first conceptualize a black cat and then try to suppress the thought. So you have to bring that thing up to then try to suppress it. And so trying not to think about something usually makes it worse. What you did is exactly what you're supposed to do, which is use the fact that you have a limited capacity for attention to your advantage. The more you think about something else, the less space you have left over in your brain for worry. For someone with a chronic anxiety disorder, anxiety is basically like their default. Whatever whatever part of your attention that you kind of leave left over and aren't using your brain will fill that empty space with worry. And so on on a moment-to-moment basis, one of the best things you can do to manage anxiety is to put other things in your consciousness, in your awareness. Do things 
think of do stimulating things. That's the other big mistake people make is with downtime, you know, when we're relaxing or whatnot, we often do really simple things like, okay, I don't mean to pick on it, but for some reason, the example that always comes to my mind is watch House Hunters. Oh. <laughs> you know, the show House Hunters. <laughs> I don't know why that's my go-to example. It just is. It's not a very stimulating show. Like there's no, there's no real plot or storyline if you mentally duck out for 10 minutes, you won't forget, like, this is a couple who is shopping for a house. You'll still understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. People tend to do really understimulating things with their downtime. And that's kind of a mistake because if it's understimulating, it leaves a lot of space left over in your brain for worry. So what you want to look for are activities that are high stimulation but low stress. Remember that stimulation and stress are different. Stimulation is just about how interesting or engaging it is. Stress is more about like how important it is, it, is it to you to achieve some specific outcome right now. And they're separate variables. Interesting. I honestly would have never even thought about stimulation and anxiety and stress in the same thought process, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, doing super low stimulation stuff is not generally going to be helpful to your anxiety. Just so, do something that, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, so I was going to say, so I, so I feel my most anxious when I take my son and my dog for a walk. And mm -hmm. that's when I start spinning. But what I do now is I listen to books on Audible. And so mm -hmm. when that stupid little idea pops in my head, that's like, worry about me, worry about me. I'm like, no, no, I have to listen to how Facebook is ruining society or something. Like, I can't do this. <laughs> yeah, see, you're doing exactly what you should do there. Your brain can only pay attention to so many things at any one time. So if you put something else interesting in there that your brain's like, oh, I want to think about that, you leave less space for the anxiety. I know you'll get this because you have a young child. It's kind of like if you don't entertain him and give him things to do, he'll find his own things to do. Oh, yes. Those aren't always things that you want him to do. <laughs> and so one of the best ways that you can prevent a kid from doing things that you don't want them to do is by giving them things you want them to do. You got to occupy them or they'll occupy themselves and they won't always do it in a way that's acceptable to you. Well, I appreciate you explaining to people that I can't just turn it off all by myself and just not be anxious and not think about it anymore. <laughs> it's that's not a real strategy. Yeah. It, it's just not real. We don't work that way. So you have a self-help book coming out. Talk to me about that. Well, coming out might be a little optimistic because I'm not even done writing it yet. In fact, I've, I've made some changes to it recently, but I'm working very, very hard on it. Um, it was kind of an accident. I really just, I mentioned earlier that I have a pretty long wait list for therapy. My initial vision was to write like a five to 10 page handout that I could give to people on my wait list and give them some things that they could start working on while they're waiting for me. Like the food thing, for example, like you don't need a therapy session with me. You don't need a full hour with me to understand if I eat three meals a day, my anxiety and depression will get a little bit better. No, you, you don't necessarily need me for that. You can start that on your own. It was meant to be concepts like that. But by the time I finished writing it, it was like 50,000 words. So <laughs> it's just, <laughs> um, but it wasn't in like a book format. And I'm not a writer. All my writing, I've never written a book before and I didn't even intend to write one. 
um, all my writing has been, you know, academia, right? Like, mm -hmm. like dissertations and research and such. So upon reading what I had written, I had two reactions. One is that it was really good information. The other is that it was so boring to read <laughs> because I don't know. I didn't know how to write in an engaging way. Um, so that's my big, that's my big focus right now is on writing style. The information is there. What I'm, I, I think self-help book would be the appropriate um, category, I guess, to place it in. But what I want to emphasize is that whenever this thing actually gets done and gets released in some format, it's going to be a lot different than what's out there right now. If you look at what's out there right now for self-help books, I feel like most of them, I don't mean this to sound mean-spirited, but it might a little, and there might not be a way around that. I feel like most of them kind of fall into two categories. There's a lot of them that are kind of what I call like Bob Ross style, like everything is okay. Everyone just be happy. And it's very flowery and gentle and praiseful. And, and those aren't bad per se, but... I tend to find them a little lacking in actual content and strategies. A lot of them, to me, are just better ways of saying don't worry so much. And, and they're really lacking in the like application department. Mm -hmm. The other choice, and this is kind of a new thing, but it seems to become a really big trend in self-help books, is you can also get an angry guy who swears a lot. That's <laughs> become a, a big category now. <laughs> Seriously, it's like there's a lot of books that are basically that. And if that's... If that's what you're looking for, that's fine. You know, if something helps you and doesn't cause any harm, I have no problem with it. But I think there's a lot of people out there who aren't really looking for either of those things. And hopefully that's where I come in. My, what I'm working on is different than anything out there that I've seen. The main, the core foundation, and this kind of goes back to my frustrations with health class in high school, is I don't think that we have a very good system in place for creating healthy adults. I just, if you look at our world and our society, it, it fails a lot of people. Mm -hmm. A lot of people go through our system, you know, whether that's the education system, the healthcare system, social system, and, and they don't come out prepared. And we have this arbitrary timeline like, you graduate high school, okay, you're now an adult. That's based on literally nothing. That's not based on science. Our brains don't finish growing until we're 25 years old, so the idea that an 18-year-old is an adult is just silly, in my opinion. But I just think we aren't taught what we need to be taught to take care of ourselves. We're taught, like, trivia and Jeopardy questions, and we play sports, and then they say, okay, go be a person now. And I... I just don't think it's a good system. And so what, I, what I'm aiming for with this book is to fill in those gaps and give people what I think they should have been given, but maybe weren't. With my yeah. son, right now I'm seeing how important it is to teach him emotions and how, what is a health, like you can be angry, but you can't hit if you're angry. But by all means, be I, angry, it's okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah. going through those motions with him right now, I'm seeing it's so important to teach him how to take care of himself emotionally and mentally and have tools. And not everyone's taught that because not everyone oh. came from parents who have tools. Right. I, I think most people aren't taught that. Again, this is subjective, just based on my little corner of the world, but I think a lot of people don't get 
those types of experiences. It just gets deferred. Like parents think, oh, he'll learn that at school or from his friends, and the school says, oh, the parents will do it, and no one does it. Everyone just assumes someone else will do it, and the end result is someone who's not really ready to be a grown-up, but they're forced into it anyway. And it's, it's just not a good system. I don't think it's fair. So if someone wanted your self-help book, is this just blanketed across every single person? You don't have to have anxiety or depression or disordered eating. Anyone could find this book beneficial. It, that's what I'm going for. The aim is that this is going to be just in general about taking good care of yourself and being a healthy adult, which there's a million different reasons why we might struggle with that. But I think for many of us, those reasons are going to relate to missed experiences and missed education and missed trainings. We're, we're expected to know things that we might not know. We're expected to know how to do things that maybe no one showed us how to do. Human beings are pretty unique among mammals in terms of how little instinct we have. We are not born knowing how to do much. Almost nothing. Pretty much everything we do, everything we learn to do, we're basically at the mercy of whatever circumstances we happen to be born into. What neighborhood do you live in? Well, you know, how healthy were your parents? Who did you grow up around? Who were your friends? These things have such a huge impact on us. We have no control over it. We have no say in it. And we just get what we get. And a lot of us don't get what we need. And that can cause all kinds of different problems. I'm not saying that's the cause of all anxiety or all depression or anything like that. But I think it's a contributing factor for basically any human being who has any kind of emotional struggles. Okay, well, you need your book That's has to come out. Anyway. That's all I have to say after hearing that. Like, you just gave me the best elevator pitch. So we got we got to get this thing out. <laughs> I work on it every day. It's I, and I'm I'm going to have to rein in my perfectionism a little bit. I know that I know that it will never be done the way I want it to be. But I want it to be a book that I feel like only I could write. That's my goal, and it's getting there. I think that's a very good goal. I don't think a lot of people go into things thinking of it that way. I think they think about the end goal of, am I going to be successful from this? But I like that you're saying this is uniquely me and I want people to know that. Being successful actually isn't my end goal with the book. Like, I'm not going to be mad if that happens. Don't get me wrong. But <laughs> that's part of why I'm kind of reworking it to be a little bit less. It just felt generic before. I would rather that this book change a hundred people's lives dramatically than be mildly helpful to a hundred thousand people. Even though I probably make way more money in the second scenario, this isn't, you know, I have a job and a career already. This book isn't like a financial endeavor for me. This is just something I feel like is important for me to do. No, I think that's amazing. Okay. So if people want to follow you on Instagram so they can yes. see when your book may or may not be coming out, I'm really hoping it's coming out, but what, what, where can they find you? I promise it will come out eventually. I just don't know when I will not quit or give up on this. I promise. <laughs> uh, my Instagram, which is really the only like professional online presence I have at this point is at doctor, just Dr. period Scott, S C O T T period, Eilers, E-I-L-E-R-S. That's where you'll find me. And you have great information that you put out daily. I look forward to your posts. They genuinely make me feel better about my life. So <laughs> I appreciate all <laughs> the information you provide. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
thank you for saying that. That is exactly the goal of my Instagram. That's what it's meant to be for. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on my podcast and talking with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been great. I've really enjoyed our time together. Yeah, me too.